0: Welcome to the Vet Podcast by the Vet Gurus, Brendan and Mark. Get ready for the latest veterinary news, information and entertainment. Don't forget to visit us at the Vet Gurus website, vetgurus.com. Now, sit back, relax. It's over to the Vet Gurus, Brendan and Mark.
1: Welcome, Brendan here with Mark as always. Episode 206, Friday, september the 17th 2021 how are you mark
0: i'm wonderful up
1: out in the outback as we call it here in
0: Australia. i have been spending a bit of time in remote locations in southwestern queensland i was telling you about the wonderful hell hole gorge national park before we came on air brendan
1: Yes. Why would anybody choose to name something Hellhole? And secondly, why would somebody choose to then visit it, as you have, Mark, and actually camp in Hellhole? But you made it out of Hellhole, I hear. We have we've gotten black
0: to black tobacco, back all back to black all, um, but we but um Hellhole was was um well one of the what what's a Badly named, misnamed place. It was. It's a um, wonderful gorge in the Mulga country, in the back of um, uh, between Aramunga, north of Aramunga, and and west of Adavale. And um, and yeah, the 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 uh, gorge is filled with lush gum trees, and and the surrounding, you know, the surrounding country is pretty stark and and arid. Um, but, um, yeah, still still pretty special ecosystem and a lot to see, a lot of birds, not many reptiles, as I was saying to you. We've, we have yes. found some pebble-mimicking dragons, um, but not much else, a bearded dragon. Um, so do you know why they named it
1: such, Mark? What's the history with that?
0: Well, we were chatting to a few people at the... Uh, has, locals, yeah, the lo- a couple of locals, and and it is apparently it has a reputation for, uh, um, a uh, uh you know, a, a, an atrocity against some indigenous people in retribution for some purported crime, uh, you know, in the 1870s, I believe. Um, and uh, and yeah, uh, the, the, a lot of the local um senior station workers. Won't go swimming in the water there for fear of touching the bones and souls mm. of Aborigines who may have died there.
1: Oh, it is a bit spooky. It's a bit like mm. a picnic at Hanging Rock, Mark, here <laughs> in, in Melbourne.
0: Uh, yeah, so I hope you slept
1: soundly and
0: you're out of hellhole. Thank goodness for that. You made it I out I look forward safely. to the next time I can go back, Brendan.
1: Yes. Speaking of hellholes... <laughs> <laughs> Work's been good, Mark. Work has been good. We had a bit of a chat about uh, my work and busy as most veterinary clinics are, but we're plugging away nicely and um, I'm actually um, in the zone lately. It's been good. Um, good cases, um, good clients and, um, yeah, interesting, interesting and fun patients. I meant to ask one.
0: you, Brendan, I've, I've been speaking to a couple of um, uh colleagues and their suggestion to me was that um, by and large clients have been exceedingly supportive of veterinarians at this time working their way through the coronavirus issues Um, but there's just been an occasional, uh, what's the right word, someone who's reached the end of their tether just as they come to the the um, veterinary hospital, and uh, there, it's been. There's been some irrational behaviour, not not as much as you might expect, but still something that's had to be dealt with. Have have you had that happen? Not not recently. No, we've
1: been very lucky, I suppose, in the last few months, um, all of this year, probably. Um, I mean, obviously, some frustration with clients who who can't manage to. Um, get seen straight away, expecting to be seen straight away. And I know there's certainly some clinics that are booked out for, you know, a good two weeks, Mark, for routine um, consultations. We're not quite that, that far ahead. We're certainly a few days um, and sometimes a week, um, depending on the week in question. But um, so you get some clients, and you can understand that, you know, their animal is unwell and they have a bit of anxiety about it. But um, once you sort of explain the situation and you try and Trying to accommodate it, obviously, if it's something that we think is is potentially um, more serious there, and um, we we increasingly do the drop-off consultations as well. Um, if if our consultations are the curbside ones are, are booked out, um, so we have have a little bit of leeway to have a few patients that are also dropped off um, first thing in the morning and try and work through those during the day. So, yeah. But, yeah, I think you're right in that um, compared with the first period of lockdown or lockdowns, um, certainly here in in Melbourne, um, people are a little bit more antsy and I think they've realised that, that, you know, everybody's struggling a little bit um, and and vets are under the pump. So, yeah. So we keep plugging away, Mark. Um, and which reminds me, I, I've got a quick little review, Mark, um, and it's a, a very quick one. And it's a, I don't know whether it, I've reviewed it before, but we certainly mention it all the time to our clients. Um, and I think it's an indispensable. Um, little piece of equipment and that's an infrared thermometer gun, Mark. Speaking of COVID related things, <laughs> um, we um I'm always recommending it, especially to those reptile owners, to to do a quick measurement of the temperature and the temperature gradients in the enclosure and, and um, you know, the price of them has certainly plummeted, has haven't they over the years? I remember when I first started looking at purchasing one for measuring temperatures. Um for, for mainly the reptile enclosures, it, they were about $1,500. Um, and I think these days you can buy a, a relatively accurate one for, you know, $30 to $50 Australian um, on eBay, Mark, or, or any of the other sort of marketplaces. And um, so I, I'm constantly recommending it for all the new reptile um, clients and, and even clients. Of, of other animals as well for because it really encourages them to do the temperature measurements doesn't it mark because it's fun um, pointing that little um, laser beam mark and and measuring that that t- temperature so they're much more likely to actually do the temperature measurements so you know i think they're fantastic um, invention and um, every owner should think about purchasing one um, and certainly every exotic vet practice should have at least one of them as well.
0: I like them a lot, Brendan, because they give the, um they add to the concept. Many, many reptile keepers have a, some sort of thermometer in the enclosure, maybe the the thermistor attached to their thermostat that checks the temperature at which the the, the, the heating element comes on or off, um, but they're single point measures, and as we know, um, reptiles require a gradient, a mosaic of temperatures, um, and with the infrared thermometer guns, um, you can you can get much get a much better appreciation of that gradient. Um, and it's interesting that while the hotspot under the light may well be 33 or 34 degrees all year round, um, the gradient may steep away to, you know, dangerously cold temperatures in the winter um, and actually may not have any gradient at some stages in the summer. And, and you won't know that unless you have one of these guns absolutely
1: and i just love that you happened to throw in um the term thermistor mark uh, during our conversation yes um, i'm very proud of you (laughs) for for talking about um resistors that depend on temperature yes um hence the name thermistor thermal resistor um I used to play around with um, electronics at one stage. <laughs> Did you, <know> that?
0: <laughs> oh, you do. You have told me. You have told me. And yes. it doesn't surprise me at all. And I like to be, because of your expertise, I do like to be as precise as possible.
1: <laughs> um, well done. Well done. <laughs> um, so, yes, infrared thermometer gun. Um, get out there, buy one, and use it just... Um, don't um, go crazy, pointing the actual <laughs> little light into people's eyes. That's the only thing I'd be a little bit careful about doing, Mark. Um, um, it's a it's a bare minimum of an eight point six out of ten, Mark. Probably a nine out of ten. I think. Yeah, I, I, I'm with you. all Probably the way. or nine and a half, I reckon, yeah, because they're very affordable. Let's go with nine point five out of ten. Um, my score for those. Um, Now, I'm going to jump into my news story, Mark, and and the story goes on, doesn't it? Um, The dispute that has arisen over Geronimo's post-mortem results. And for those of you who haven't um, listened to the previous few episodes, um, I'm not going to cover what it's all about, except for it's um, a four-year legal battle about um, two positive bovine TB tests on Geronimo the alpaca in the United Kingdom. Um, and Geronimo was subsequently euthanised after lots of protests and and appeals. And the results are back, Mark, and um, the um, owner of Geronimo requested a copy of the post-mortem examination, and her lawyers confirmed that she received the preliminary findings, and she's disputing the fact that he had um he had t b um so um I think that they'll go to the, they're applying for another court order um i think and I think this case will just keep going on and on and on mark um, even though the the government um report from defra confirmed that several t b lesions have been found in Geronimo according to their report and that the full results would be completed. By the end of the year, Mark, by the end of the year, um, they're obviously um, going to drag it on as long as they <laughs> can by the sound of it. Because as we, as we know, typically, although I suppose with the TB sort of um, 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 check, it might take a little bit longer than your normal sort of um, path
0: um, results. I think you're being yeah, very so what generous, do you think? Brendan. I think <laughs> yeah. I don't, I'm actually interested to understand why why it will take till the end of the year, because um whether they whether they're just trying to wear poor miss Ms Mcdonald out you know keep it dragging on so long that people lose interest um i i Yes, I don't know. I don't, she has requested um, fresh,
1: frozen, and formalin-fixed tissues and fluid to be preserved and provided um, to a or to an independent expert to carry out um, independent testing. Mark.
0: So, so this is my question to you, Brendan. Let's, <sighs> so let's say for like I'm I'm going to predict. I'm going to go out here on a very bold limb and say the government. The government results already say that um, that their findings demonstrated, I've got it right here, um, in contradiction to the letter from the lawyers, the CVO Christine Middleness said, "We have completed the initial post mortem dr- examination. A number of TB-like lesions were found, and in line with standard practice, are now undergoing further investigation. These tests include bacteriological culture, and this may take several months. That's that's yes, the, that's, that's the where the time frame. Yes, with now. the culture. Yep, yep. Um, but the lawyers say uh, the preliminary." gross post-mortem findings were negative for visible lesions of typical bovine tuberculosis. Uh, For clarity, there were no white or cream caseus enlarged abscesses typical for Btb in alpacas, whether in the lungs, bronchial, mediastinal, or retropharyngeal lymph nodes. So my bold prediction is both uh, agencies, both parties, are going to continue to find Evidence that supports their point of view. Yes, and there'll be no resolution, and then and no my, resurrection. Mike. That's my. What's going to happen? The the government in trying to carry out a system that um, maintains the health of large populations of animals and the business of farmers, they have to be. They don't have to be perfect. I don't think we can't expect them to be perfect. They're going to run tests and they are going to make mistakes. But um, let's say that, for hypothetically speaking, that this is one of those mistakes that they've erred on the side of, of uh, you know, uh, being overly conservative and and uh, had an animal euthanase that likely had the disease but maybe didn't. What what do what do people expect? Yeah. I don't understand what they expect, Brendan. And how many other? Why is Geronimo the focus? Because he's a cute alpaca. How many other animals are euthanized that don't have the benefit of tens of thousands of pounds in legal fees um, trying to save them? It's I just I'm gobsmacked, Brendan. Smacked in the gob, (laughs) yes.
1: Um, And you thought you got out of hellhole. Yes. Um, Yeah. We'll see. I'll I'll keep our listeners updated for any updates.
0: It is a little bit like a um, soap opera. It's starting to feel like a soap opera. Yes.
1: Now, what do you have for us, Mark? Hopefully, something a little bit more
0: more, um, more upbeat. Well, I returned to the UK with you um, to uh, support them in their announcement that it's been declared free from avian influenza. They had significant outbreaks of the disease last winter, uh, but our good friend CEO Christine Middleness um, has said um, that international standards have been met to declare the UK free from avian flu but she urged poultry keepers to remain vigilant for signs of the disease as winter approaches. Um, Avian flu is one of those really difficult diseases because it's carried in many migrating birds. And so um, despite the fact that, um, you know, uh, the country can be freed, can be technically freed in the captive population. Um, It's very easy for for any country, for that matter, uh, to be contaminated with um, uh, avian flu by many of the wild birds that migrate through the country. And highly pathogenic strains of avian flu are spreading widely throughout Europe at the moment. And particularly as we leave um, our uh, southern hemisphere winter to head to spring that means that um, the winter is about to set in in the north and the possibility that migratory birds flying to the UK um, will introduce the disease and increase the risk for domestic poultry is significant uh, mm. so yeah I'm, I I'm Proud to announce they've established a uh, avian influenza free zone. I hope they manage to keep it out. Um, yeah,
1: yeah. For how long? I suppose is your answer, isn't it? They need to build a a very, very high wall, Mark. <laughs> I don't.
0: Uh, I disagree with you. I think they need to build <laughs> a very large roof. <laughs> yes, yes, they do. I think that would do the trick, perhaps yes uh ah, okay. it does well, The other thing about that story is that yes. um the biosecurity talking about biosecurity and airborne diseases just brings me back to what we're going through in this country and parts of this country. It's you know. We just need an outbreak of highly pathogenic avian influenza to skip species in the UK and set off um, uh, a, a human um, uh, epidemic in that country, and bloody hell, the world will fall apart. Yes. Sorry, well, I was supposed to be an Yes. <laughs> <Sorry. laughs>
1: I thought it would be positive with that um that grab at the start there that title. You know what no. I like
0: I can take any title yeah. <laughs> any quick bait title and turn it into a dour, depressing story.
1: Well, let's jump into our main story. Um, our main um topic mark and it's um I think this is a good one. Well done for you suggested this many many months ago and I'll finally put it on your list here. <laughs> and that's the condition of um pyramidin in Chelonia. So large
0: triangular um, shaped
1: shell growth, PSG. Um PSG. Um, in turtles and tortoises, Mark, because it is a fascinating um sort of syndrome, isn't it? And um I think there's a, a few causes that um have have been proven of of um of causing it in in certain circumstances that that people just wouldn't know about, Mark. Um, so let's jump into it. And um, what is it, Mark? What does it what does it look like? What are we talking about?
0: Well, what we're talking about is the irregular um uh bump, swelling, change in shape of the scoots, particularly the dorsal scoots, um on um on the shell of, uh, uh, many different species of turtles. Um, and as a consequence, the appearance, uh, because many of the scoots have, you know, four sides or five sides, the, the, uh, raised bump ha- ends up having a roughly pyramid shape. And sometimes these can be really pronounced Brendan. Um, and, uh, and, and it's important to note that, um, that some, particularly some of the lands, land tortoises, the uh, terrestrial tortoises, um, it's a normal appearance for some of those tortoises to have these uh, pronounced scoots, but there's many species where it is not. It's a representation of um, aberrant growth um, and, and probably representative of some long-term low-grade pathology, Brendan.
1: Yes, absolutely. So two important points there it is normal so or, or a normal appearance in some some tortoises um so the key there is to make sure you know what species you're looking at and um, don't make a fool of yourself <laughs> so I'm thinking <laughs> that it has a has a problem when it doesn't, and secondly it's yeah it's a it, it's abnormal growth um of of the scutes or the shell, um, especially the carapacial aspects are the dorsal um, shell in these um, reptiles. And, yeah, causes, Mark, um, it's potentially multifactorial um, like it is with a lot <laughs> of um, conditions that we see. But I think we need to point out a couple of really interesting um, studies um, that have that have looked at this condition in, in certain species under particular um condition environmental conditions especially, Mark. And and um if you want to chat about um the first one of those.
0: Well I think um the the first thing I wanted to mention was that in the lay literature, um, there is a lot of talk equating um this condition in in Chelonia to metabolic bone disease. Um they're often spoken about in the same breath, um, and and there has been a, a you know a number of uh, um, articles which suggest a correlation between uh, metabolic bone disease and this condition. But I think it's um, I think the problem here there certainly is um, some evidence that um, uh, calcium, vitamin D, and ultraviolet light play a role, but it's not the classic. Um, the classic role we see with, you know, those soft-shelled turtles that uh, um, that uh, 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 have grown rapidly, but um, they tend to have a deformed shell because the shells haven't ossified appropriately. Um, these I call are- them stress ball turtles,
1: Mark, <laughs> um, those ones, because they're quite squishy, yeah. Oh, my goodness. Do you like that? Yeah. Um, <laughs> You you won't forget that now. I will that. I've, I've disturbed your tr- train of thought there. So, um, yeah. So what? I, I agree with you 100 percent with that. In that the calcium vitamin D slash and, and UV sort of metabolic bone disease syndrome is is probably involved in some way with some of these, but it's certainly not um, not the only cause, and that may be a minor a minor cause of these PSG. Turtles or tortoises, Mark.
0: I think, um, and it's in, the other interesting thing is that for many, particularly as a, a younger veterinarian, I was aware of the condition um, as I read the literature, particularly from America. Um, but it's only been uh, relatively, I don't know, the last fifteen years, as I've gotten grayer and older, um, that I've seen it quite regularly in uh, aquatic. Turtles and particularly those, um, the freshwater turtles we see most commonly in Australia. I see it quite regularly in those species now, Brendan.
1: Yes. So, what are the other possible causes, Mark?
0: (laughs) Um, the other causes, uh, And you highlighted to me uh, very early in this discussion the multifactorial nature. So I don't think I'd be happy to say any single one of these things is an absolute cause, but when they uh, mix in together, they certainly um, are likely to produce the condition. um, I think that um, a lot of it seems to be focused around the the kidneys. So um, uh, relative hydration and so particularly inappropriate um, humidity for our uh, terrestrial tortoises, um, that can uh, play a role. Um, I think the kidneys' critical role in the formation of a number of those uh, hormones that uh, manage calcium metabolism um, Mm -hmm. plays a role in nutrition once again, in the way that uh, um, growth occurs, uh, the way that um, uh, bones lay down, the way that high protein diets affect renal function, um, and the formation of the various proteins, there's some thought that um, the the way, the manner in which these scoots form, uh, the series of um, inappropriate layers of keratin that mount up may well reflect a fault in the formation of keratin. Um, And so high-protein diets definitely, and fast growth, fast uh, growth in young turtles, definitely seems to play um, a contributing role. Um, And and an odd one that you made me aware of was um, uh, nocturnal heat exposure. And um, those... uh, in. Uh, those enclosures that don't allow a, a nighttime temperature to drop and therefore permit a diurnal cycle of temperature, um, that sort of makes sense that um, that if they're uh, unable to establish homeostasis with respect to uh, hydration, that they're chronically a little bit dehydrated, that um, Persistent uh, temperatures without that variation may increase the chance of renal complications and then inappropriate keratin deposition on the scoots.
1: Yes, and interestingly enough, yeah, there was a. Uh, I think there was that that nocturnal heat exposure has been one of the potential causes was was um, called out in a, in a paper that I found. marking as as well as the hu- low humidity. Um, was um, strongly suspected um, in in one particular study where they deliberately sort of lowered the humidity, um, and that they found there was an increased chance of the um, pyramid forming in the scoot's mark. So um, it's yeah, it's a it's a fascinating um, um, condition, Mark, and um, I think um, the next question that people often ask is, you know, what's the treatment for it? So what is the treatment for it, Mark?
0: Well, that's a short answer to a complicated question. I I don't think there's um, any specific treatment. There are some situations where um, in the very early stages where there's a number of retained previous shed, you know, scoot scales that should have been shed, and they're starting to pyramid up that a return to normal nutrition um, and uh, appropriate husbandry might cause the, the shedding of those, uh, those uh, initial few scoots and return the shell to normal. But in the majority of cases, the changes uh, lead to probably permanent structural change that can't be corrected. Yes, so the answer is no, you can't treat it. <laughs> is that what you're saying? Yeah, that's what I was saying.
1: But the, having said that, the prognosis is is pretty good with these, um, considering, um, assuming that we don't have underlying um, issues like renal failure <laughs> or, or rather um, secondary sort of or interrelated um, organ dysfunction, Mark, um, yes, you'll have a... Have a um, uh, a tortoise that you um, you can't um,
0: put take your, to the show ring.
1: Yeah, that's right. Or you or you um, you you can't um, put your dinner plate on it without it falling off. Um, or maybe it will sit up nicely depending <laughs> on how symmetrical the, the little pyramids are on it, Mark. Um, because the changes are yeah basically irreversible there. Um, even if you um, reverse or stop the the. The, the known causes in that particular individual there um, but we can certainly prevent it can't we mark or we can we can we, we can do things that that have a, a good chance of stopping the condition um, um, occurring even though we don't know all of the multifactorial um, causes of this condition um, so what do we do mark to help prevent it occurring. Well,
0: the first one I focus on is um, nutrition, that we want to not overfeed the animals and not overfeed them high-protein uh, foods. We want to make sure we match the natural diet for that species as closely as possible um, and yet not encourage very, very fast growth. That's step one. The next one is to um, probably... Um, it's a... Uh, a little bit less important with the aquatic turtles, but any of the terrestrial tortoises, we've got to maintain the appropriate reasonable levels of humidity and not allow those um, uh, humidity levels to drop to precipitously low levels. Um, and as we mentioned, the study suggests the uh, failure to allow a sick a diurnal cycle in temperature plays an increase in... Uh, a uh, role in increasing the the complications, the chance of this happening. And so making sure that uh, enclosures are set up to provide a diurnal temperature cycle, um, all those things are likely to help.
1: Yes. So <laughs> I've lost my train of thought there. I was about to say something um, insightful, Mark, <laughs> for once. Insightful for months. Um, it's, yeah... It, no, you, what was the first bit you mentioned? Yeah, growth, um, um, food, protein. Yes, that was what I was going to talk about. Um, it's, this is, and this it's, is... It's you a recurring about theme. Yes. It's a recurring well, theme about overfeeding um, in, and inappropriate feeding of unusual pets, and pets in general, isn't it, Mark? But especially unusual pets and that we're increasingly looking, stepping back and, and looking based on, based on research a lot of the time as... Um, And realising that we overfeed um, these animals, and
0: and overfeed like you know a little turtle in the wild. (laughs) Yes, (laughs) a little turtle, a little turtle in the wild is going to spend an awful lot of energy. (laughs) Sorry, my uh, Siri is um, jumping in. I so a little hatchling turtle is going to spend an awful lot of energy um, being hiding away from uh, from ibises and herons and kingfishers, um, and um, is going to eat mosquito wrigglers and tiny little uh, insects that provide almost you know minimal energy, um, and they're not going to find a lot of them. So. When we put them in an enclosure with no predators and we make their life wonderful and supported, and we feed them twice a day with large chunks of high protein food, it's just overdoing it, massively overdoing it, yep, yep, and it's
1: with all, you know, I had a client today with with um, with a couple of rabbits that were very overweight, Ach, yeah, okay. and I said to the client, your are obese, <laughs> and uh, they wanted to know if they should cut down on um, the few cups of pellets that they feed every day, and I said, yeah, perhaps that's a good start um, with at least um, put
0: the pellets at the top of a very high <laughs> exercise mountain.
1: And, yeah... Um, so I think that's a great point, Mark, about the, you know, we talk about the protein um, being being a factor with this um, main topic we're talking about today with the pyramid in chelonia. but um, it's, it's, it's such a recurring theme, isn't it? Um, diet and disease and, and diet and um, overfeeding um, in these unusual pets. So, yeah, that's what I wanted to say. Uh, Very we insight. took five minutes to, um, <laughs> to get to that. Um, do we have any other um, final comments, Mark, before we log out for this week?
0: Um, yeah, I was just going to f- finish by saying that um, turtles are, are, are amongst my favourite patients and um, and it's funny how um, they are so um, uh, resilient Um, They don't let you know they're sick until things are really disastrous. And as you said, um, the patients that have this condition in relatively modest form can go on and have a a relatively normal life. They probably will get into trouble, you know, rather than living three or four decades, they might only live a couple before their kidneys give out, um, but they can still have a good quality life. Um, But yeah, when they do hit the wall, Um, uh, things go wrong, they tend to go precipitously wrong.
1: Well said, Mark. Well said. And we'll talk to you all next week. Thanks for
0: listening to the Vet Podcast by the Vet Gurus.